Even James 1, 1, one verse is the word of God, amen? And as he says, I tell you this morning, greetings. My hope at the end of this overview sermon is that you'll take the 15 to 20 minutes out of your week this week that it takes to sit down and read this letter in its entirety. You can sit down and read James in about 15 to 20 minutes. And so I hope a good goal is, is that I can whet your appetite for this sermon series and, uh, but most of all, for the Word of God. If you spend any time at all trying to seriously share your faith with other people today, you will inevitably hear someone say, that they do not believe the gospel or that they don't want anything to do with what you're talking about because Christians that they know are nothing but hypocrites. So you've heard this before. Anyone who would say such a thing is first far more right than they actually know. They are far more right than they actually know. And secondly... They are far more prideful than they know as well. (laughs) Far more prideful. There is no one in the world currently and in this world historically who is not chief among hypocrites. We often only master our own hypocrisies after they have successfully wounded us (laughs) dealt us great sorrow, great loss, great difficulty. And ironically and sadly, history's hypocrisies are the same. Let me give you a current example from history and by way of introduction. Okay, example of hypocrisy here in the church. Uh, This year, actually, the oldest child care facility in our nation is going to celebrate 283 years of existence. It's called uh, Bethsaida Academy, and it is currently operating as a preparatory academy um, in Georgia. Its long history prior to that is that it was called uh, originally in its founding Bethsaida, uh, Bethesda, excuse me, sorry, I need to pronounce that, Bethesda Orphanage. It was an orphanage founded by the first Great Awakenings greatest leader, George Whitfield. The orphanage was started in 1740 by Whitfield personally, and it was his greatest entrepreneurial charity. If you don't know him, he was the, uh, the, the main leader of the, of the Great Awakening. The mission of the orphanage uh, was simple. This was its mission. Quote, the staff at the orphanage would minister to the children's basic needs, teach them God's word, and pray for their conversion. That's wonderful, right? And they did it. Now, where's the hypocrisy that, was, that we so keenly see now? Well, first, this is what no Christian would disagree with, a man known as the greatest evangelist in the American church's history, that was, that's what Whitfield is known for, the greatest evangelist in our, in our nation's uh, church history. He was nicknamed the spiritual father of America. Okay? And to have true religion like this, to actually take care of orphans like he did, is amazing. And that's a no-brainer. That's a no-brainer for Christians. But secondly, and really the most troubling and hypocritical thing is, here's some quote, Bethesda was arguably the key reason why Whitfield would, in time, begin to advocate for introducing slavery into colonial Georgia, where it was originally banned. 
He imagined that slaves could work on farms around Bethesda, which could help fund operations at the orphanage, end quote. That's indeed what ended up happening. Whitfield's view of slavery was redeemed in his eyes compared to the brutality of the enterprise as a whole elsewhere as it occurred near the orphanage. Earlier, Whitfield had denounced the abuse of slaves by southern slave masters. But by the mid-1740s, South Carolina supporters had given him farms and slaves to generate revenue for his ministry. So we end up concluding Whitfield did not see the contradiction between Christian benevolence and the expansion of Chattel slavery. That's a hypocrisy for sure. Now, before you employ some acute discernment from either end of either camp, you want to do, slow down. Here's why I bring this up. I want you to consider God's patience and most of all, God's grace in this situation I'm telling you about historically. Now listen, George Whitfield died with this appalling blind spot and he didn't even free the slaves of Bethesda in his will. So, I mean, he died and even in his living will, he did not free them, but rather, you know, condoned in his will their continued efforts there. But get this, at his funeral, a Boston slave girl shared a lament poem for the great evangelist, okay? She shared in that poem, it's long, but here's just one line, quote, if you, calling out to people, if you will choose to walk in grace's road, you shall be sons and kings and priests to God. Now, now why do I share this with you this morning? A man who dies with the glaring blind spot of not seeing how he shouldn't continue entrepreneurial charity and love, you know, for the orphan on the back and, you know, labor of, of this evil institution. He shouldn't have fought to try to conserve it or bring it into institutional reality in Georgia as he did. He shouldn't have done that. And yet, at his death, a slave actually testifies to the grace of God as God used him to be the spiritual father of our country in his evangelistic efforts. I mean, that's a glaring hypocrisy and yet a merciful conclusion that God can work through the mess of hypocrisy. You want to know why I share this with you this morning? Because you are a hypocrite just like George Whitfield. You are. I'm a hypocrite just like George Whitfield. People who are woke or social justice warriors are going to do what? They're going to condemn people. And you know what they are? They're just like George Whitfield as well. Want to get real personal about your news feed this week? People who think revival is happening at Asbury College right now or people who do not think that revival is happening there. Guess what they're like? Just like George Whitfield. They're hypocrites. People on either side of whatever Christian debate you pick are just like George Whitfield, full of glaring hypocrisies that often you don't even get to know you hold until you get to heaven. Here's the scandalous truth about this. God's grace in a person's life not only extends to their salvation, but it extends into their post-conversion lives as well. That's good news. That, my friend, is at the heart of what James knows and expects you to believe as a Christian. 
You have God's grace and conversion at your salvation? Awesome. Is it with you in the way you live every single day? Are you aware of the reality that God's grace must cover your future hypocrisies, even the ones you don't see and will die in? Is that the kind of faith you're after? This is the kind of faith that James demands his reader think about. It's scandalous. God's grace not only extends to our salvation, but it continues to extend into our post-conversion lives. This is good news. Here's another reason why I share this with you. Because the book of James can be surmised in one warning in the negative. Here it is. Christian, live for Christ and beware of your hypocrisy. Christian, live for Christ and beware of your hypocrisy. Beware of your hypocrisy. James deals with the hypocrite at large in the church. The next 12 to 13 weeks in this letter together will be a commitment to having your hypocrisy exposed by the word of God. Are we up for it? Will you listen and learn and be sensitive and change and be convicted and repent and be called and respond to the message of James? The Christian who believes in Christ who studies James, must be committed to receiving the disciplining hand of God. They must be committed to that. They must be committed to having their blind spots exposed. If there is a nerve in you as a Christian where you love inner sin still and God's sanctifying presence hasn't got to reach it, James is trying to expose it. For you will be better off you'll be better off. To know that God doesn't agree with all of your life can be good news. You know why? Because when you learn that God doesn't agree with how you're living and that he still died for you and he still covers you in his love and his grace, you will want to live for him. It will make sense that you will pursue good works in that kind of economy. This is what James is after. This morning, we seek to understand the background of this letter so that in the weeks to come, we can have an anchor to attach ourselves to. So today's sermon, we'll only look at verse 1. Let's read it again. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersions, greetings. Okay, let's talk about this one verse for a second, and then I'll give you an outline, okay? The word translated servant here is the Greek word uh, doulos. And I encourage you to take note of your ESV Bible's preface. You can go read in the preface about the choice they've made to translate this word servant rather than slave. I'd encourage you to do that. You can understand it more. But briefly, though, I will tell you that it can rightly be translated as slave. That would read then James, a slave of God. A slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans 6, 17 and 18, for instance, we read in this ESV translation, I'm just going to read it to you so you listen to God's word in Romans 6, 17 through 18. It says this, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves, doulos, of sin, slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves, now, doulos, of righteousness. 
What's, what's Paul saying? Before Christ, you're a slave to sin. You serve sin as your master. But now that you've been set free from sin, you've become a new slave, a slave of righteousness. Sin and your love for it in slavery was a noose hanging around your neck. It has been transformed by Christ to be the leash which God holds. And you are a slave of righteousness, not your own, but another. This is the whole message of Romans, right? But here's why I'm bringing that up. If we're going to understand James and the letter of it from a 30,000 foot view, we need to adopt his title. So today's sermon seeks to help us in an overview fashion understand what does a slave of God do in life? If someone's a slave of God, what do they do? Well, that's your outline today. Let me tell you three things about slaves of God if you're taking notes. Number one, slaves of God are converted Christians. Slaves of God are converted Christians. They are also, second point going to be, comforted Christians. Comforted. And then thirdly, we'll see they are convicted Convicted Christians. Slaves of God are converted Christians. Slaves of God are comforted Christians. Slaves of God are convicted people. They are convicted Christians. Let's talk about this first idea. First point, slaves of God are converted Christians. Now, manuscripts of the book of James, you know, that's our ancient text that we look at, copies of them. Some of the oldest New Testament writings that we have are James. Also, scholars agree that it is likely the very first scripture of the New Testament. The first writings said another way. Before the Gospels, before the historical account of Acts that we just preached through, before Paul's letters written to specific churches about issues, before all that, the church had this book as its first instructions from heaven on how to follow Christ. That puts some weight behind it, doesn't it? We date James to the early to mid-40s. Let that sink in. As a community for Christ all the way in 2022. 40. <laughs> There's no numbers before that. Jesus being crucified around the age of about 33, 34. Six years after that, we have these first writings dated to the mid-40s. So all who read this book as authoritative in their lives were essentially, when it was written, fairly new converts to Christianity. If you're going to follow God for 50 years, if he gives you a long life, and you've just converted to Christianity in your early 20s, these slaves of God are converted Christians. They're new. They're new. So maybe you're here today and you followed Jesus for many decades. You can still learn from this. But for many of you, you've followed for less, a short amount of time, not as long as what your life will be. You're similar. Now, how do we know that they were converted Christians? Look, it's seen in the author of James. It's seen in the author of James. James is technically unknown. If you want to be strict, he is unknown in its authorship as a book. But for over 2,000 years, the consensus is that this book was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. That's its author. Did you know Jesus had brothers and sisters? He did. Go read the gospel accounts, right? Mary and Joseph went on to have more children. And so uh, there are three really prominent options we could consider. And so why do we pick James, the half-brother of Jesus? Well, because the other two that are optional would be James, the brother of John. You remember Peter, James, and John and the disciples, right? 
the sons of Zebedee. But we know that it cannot be James uh, the lesser, or excuse me, James the, the, the disciple, because Acts 12 records his martyrdom for us before this book was written. See, that James was killed at the persecuting hands of the, uh, the Jews in Jerusalem. He was killed, Acts 12 tells us. So he's out. It's likely not another James mentioned in one of the 12 on the list of the 12, son of Alphaeus. Sometimes we call him James the lesser. He's not him, we know, because really we don't know anything else about him. And often we know more about authors. And so it's just unlikely that he wrote it. But even stronger though, we agree that the traditional view of this is that James, the son of Mary and Joseph is in view here. The half brother of Jesus is the author of this book. Now, I want... I want you to know why I'm making such a big deal about this. It's because of the brother and sisters, brothers and sisters of Jesus, along with Mary, did not believe that Christ was their Savior until after the resurrection, which is just phenomenal information. So scripture recounts in John 7. We preached John, you know, years ago. I don't know if you remember in John 7. But John tells us that they failed to believe that Jesus was God's son. They failed to believe he was the savior of the world. So in verses three through five of John seven, it says this, quote, so his brothers and sisters, it says brothers, but the word there can be sisters, Adelphi. His brothers and sisters said to him, to Jesus, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then John adds, for not even his brothers believed in him. So we know that that James didn't believe. Yet after the resurrection, Jesus appears to his brother, James, Paul specifically records in 1 Corinthians 15, that great passage on the resurrection. He records in verse 7, Paul says that Jesus, he then appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Jesus, risen from the grave, appears to his half-brother as the Lord of all. And then he ascends into heaven. And Acts 1.14, you should remember, records that as the early church was awaiting the coming of the Holy Spirit and they were praying for the powering that Jesus said they would have to be his witnesses, it says this, all these, all of them, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together. With who? The women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. That is who? Jesus' brothers. You see, James gives his entire life to the early church. You've met James before, church. In Acts, when the main leaders of the Jerusalem church were trying to decide, do Gentiles who are saved have to follow the laws of the Jews? Do they have to do, along with being justified by faith in Christ and his sacrifice on their behalf, do they also have to keep the law? Who was it that stood up as a leader in the New Testament church? James. This James. History tells us that his life ended in this way. That he was either one stoned to death, as Josephus records, or he was cast down from the temple tower like the James of the Twelve, as Eusebius records. So Eusebius or Josephus record that one way or another he faced a martyr's death around 66 AD. What does James' life show us? Slaves of God are converted Christians. They have a clear moment where they have, by the word of truth, been delivered 
been, been transformed, brought from one degree of glory to the next in the initial, why? From darkness into light. It's seen in the story of James as the author. It's also seen in the content of James. Look in your Bible at James 1, verse 18. This letter convert, uh, tells us that God's will is to convert sinners by the preached and understood word of God. Verse 18, of his own will, he, that's God, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You see what that says? James writes as he's lived and believes that it is God's word that brings us from death to life. God's word brings us from unconverted to converted. The preached gospel brings us from slaves to sin, to slaves of righteousness. How do you become a slave of God? James teaches that you are born again, right? You are brought forth by the word of God's truth. But James teaches that you are not only born again by the power of God's word, but you are kept and finally saved by it. Look at verse 21 of that same chapter, 121. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness, what? The implanted word. You see this? And what does the word do when you hide it in your heart, kids? You learned this last week. It keeps us from sinning against God. We hide God's word in our heart that we might not sin against him. James says the implanted word is able to save your souls. Seen in life, seen in the writings of James, we conclude this. The slave of God is a converted Christian. You will not benefit from the warnings and the blessings of this book if you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. So I ask at the end of this first point, the most essential question one can answer. I'm asking all of you today, if you were to die today and you stood before God at the gates of heaven and God said to you, why should I let you into my heaven? Do you know your answer? Do you believe it? Wrong answers abound. Some people say, because I was raised in church and know about you. Some will say, I think I was good enough I hope my good will outweigh my bad and that you will choose to let me in. Some will have no answer at all. All of these answers will lead to hell. At the end of John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, on the long, long journey, one person made it to the gate named Ignorance. And when they asked him, Ignorance, do you have that which shows that you belong here? Saving faith. Ignorance said, oh, I didn't come by the way of the narrow gate. I didn't get what you are saying, but I, but I believe I can still be let in. And John Bunyan writes at the very end of his book, one of the most crucial lines you could ever get if you read that work. He says, and I saw that from the very gates of hell was a direct way to hell itself. The gates of heaven, there was a way to hell. In other words, in that final hour, at the, with the moments just away from having the celestial city and God himself, he saw that there was a way straight to hell. The answer we must have is crucial, and it's in verse 1. James, the slave of God and of who? The Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the right answer is this. I know Jesus Christ is my Lord. 
You must be able to tell God that he is the Lord who, when you were a sinner, chose to die for me. You would need to tell God that you believe that it is in your place that Jesus stood condemned so that you could be free from the curse and the slavery you had to sin. You would plead and please say, plead the blood of Jesus. To stand there before God and to give a right answer about why you should enter his heaven is to say, I have imperfectly followed after you all of my days. And it is because of Christ and his righteousness that I stand here with the hope that I will be with you. It is in that hope that Jesus is the Lord of your life who you have believed on by faith that God would say, well done, good and faithful servant into the presence of your master. Is that yours? Is that your answer today? Please hear me if it's not. And if you're not sure, you're in a right place. You're not in a wrong place. You need to visit with those around you. But friend, first, visit with the Lord of heaven. Visit with God. The reason why you're hearing the gospel right now is because we believe that today is the day of salvation. Today is. We believe this. We believe that all who call upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. When they confess that Jesus is Lord, they believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. The Bible says you will be saved. Believe today. Visit with one of us before you leave. Let us pray. Because you know why? Slaves of God are first converted Christians. Now after that, what is a slave of God? A comforted Christian. James' writings are a comfort to the church often, and we will see that in the weeks ahead. James writes, as verse 1 tells us, he writes to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. You see that in the text. What does that mean? Well, when James says the 12 tribes, this refers to the early church that he's writing to as the true people of God. That is, the Israel, okay? The, the, the people of God, the chosen children of promise who have believed God's promises by faith. Now, when we note that they are in the dispersion, you see that? This is a reference that they, as the 12 tribes, are recorded as being dispersed, that is, scattered. Well, what has scattered them? You know from studying the book of Acts, great persecutions, great sufferings, great sufferings, stonings, people that believe in Jesus before their very eyes being hit with rocks till their skin burst open and they die before them. People being imprisoned, imprisoned after public beatings, gruesome deaths. At this point, maybe even gruesome deaths at the hands of the pagans like Rome that, invict, that, that would choose far, far worse things than stoning to kill men and women in the faith. James writes to comfort a suffering group of people. Therefore, James can still speak into the sufferings of Christ's people today. Hear me, until we are gathered before the throne of God above in final worship, we are a scattered people. We're scattered all over this world. Little embassies of heaven just sprinkled all out as great witnesses to God, enduring great persecution. And we're suffering. We won't in that final day, but for now we do. Therefore, James can still speak. He can still speak into your suffering. And if you're here today and you're too prideful to admit that you're a wounded people, 
Consider that your life is but a vapor, James says. It is here today and it is gone tomorrow. So if you're not suffering now, please know that in the instant of a moment, you can be, you can experience this. So get your mind right, he says. Don't go into a town saying, oh, we're going to do this and this and this and forget that every day belongs to God. And every day also can have comfort, new mercy. Coming to Christ will often mean coming to the greatest of sufferings. If you do believe, as we said in point one, and become a converted Christian, you need to know there is comfort for Christians in suffering. But that kind of makes you wonder, are we going to suffer? Yes. Now, we must believe in humility that we need comfort along the way. James gives it to the church. There are some mountaintops, guys, that we're going to get to uh, enjoy together in the weeks ahead. Look in your copy of James and I'll show you some of them. 1.12, James 1.12 is about the reward for faithfulness in suffering. James 1.18 says, new birth is by the word of God and good gifts come from the Father. You have good gifts, guys, and we're gonna learn about them. James 1.13b tells us that God's mercy triumphs over his judgment. That's good news. James 3, 13 through 18, wisdom and peace belong to those who make peace and pursue wisdom and meekness. But did you hear what it says? Wisdom and peace can be yours. Do you want wisdom in this life? Do you want to act wisely? Do you want peace in your life? Well, study this book. It's there. James 4 will tell us that God gives more grace. If you're in Christ today and you need comfort, know this. James says God gives more grace. God gives it. He gives grace to the humble. Those who are humble will be exalted, James 4, 6 through 10. This is a mountain we get to enjoy together. Do you want more grace in this season? What fool that's a Christian would not say yes to that? You need it. Just this week, we were visiting with people out on the college. And a girl, we, we, we put a sign out that said, you know, if, if you could ask God one question, what would it be? And a young lady came up to us. I was hoping we'd see her, but I think she's out of town this week. Uh, but we'll get to connect with her, I hope. But she asked, what would, y'all's, what would y'all's question to God be? And I loved one of the brothers who was with us. His question was basically just, God, will you give me more grace? That's a great, that's a great question to ask of God. Can I have more grace? James comes and says, God gives more grace. He just gives it according to certain standards, but he gives it. James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You believe that? Are you telling me when I sit down with an intentionality in a quiet time, in a quiet place before God with his word and I, and I pray by faith, Jesus, help me to see your word is truth, that God will come to me and speak? Yes, <laughs> through his word in that moment, Believe this, draw near to me, God says. I will draw near to you. These are mountainous, glorious truths James wants you to know. James assumes your community. He assumes you're in church, singing, praying, submitting to elders, right? And you know what he does in James 5, 13 through 20? He tells, hey, hey, pray. (laughs) When you pray, you'll be healed. Pray for one another. Submit yourself, you're... Are you eager to restore a backslidden Christian to a vibrant faith in Christ? The book of James is for you. James 5.20, the way it ends. 
All these are giants, okay, that we get to conquer together. These comforts in the book of James, they belong to the gathered church. Last point here on this, on this second deal about, about the good, the, the comfort you have from this letter. It is a general epistle, which means that it's not written specifically to a church. It's written to the universal church. So it's written to churches, right? Not just the, the church that is in Galatia, like Galatians is. But this one comes to us to all the 12 tribes. It's the idea, all the churches. So, you know, the idea here is as a general epistle, it applies to faithful churches throughout all time. Now, all the scriptures do, but you think, oh, this one's real generic. But here's what I want you to see. Something sticks out about James and these comforts. One commentator named James Mortier, he, he points this out in the best ways. I'll quote him. He says this, Though James writes as one who can, with authority, address the universal church. James 1.1, 1, 1, right? right? This, this is an apostle. This is, this is the, the one uh, the, to the 12 tribes, the, the slave of God, right? This is, this is James. I mean, he's, he's using his authority, right? The, uh, Mortier continues. The only actual authorities that he mentions in his letter are the word of God, which you've heard now, and I point out to you, 118 and 121. You're born by it, and then you're kept by it, right? So he mentions, that here's, here's all that he mentions about authority. The word of God, and then the elders of the local church in verse 5, 14. So you look at chapter 5, verse 14. That's all he mentions in the whole letter. And Mortier says, if we're going to study this rightly, here's what we got to do, guys. We need to recover this local vision. Okay, if the world around us saw the problem of its own animosities, its own divisions, its own deprivations, if, it, if the world viewed them as being able to be solved in the microcosm of the local church, Moitier says, we would have no more need for special evangelistic efforts. We wouldn't even need revival events. Do you understand that? If the church is the church, and if the lost world could see all their problems, all their animosity, their division, their difficulty, if the church would be the church as James has it here, they would have all they need. Jesus said this, right? He told his disciples, how will they, the lost world, know of my love? By your love for one another. Because when you love one another like I tell you to, it has an outward explosion power. And that is what is happening in James's mind, the life of the church in James's head is the city set on a hill which cannot be hidden. So if anyone has the ability to address universally, it's James. And yet he ties all of this good, true religion to the word of God and local elders. Why is he doing that? Because he really took Jesus at his word. Now, people will come at James, like Martin Luther, and say it's an epistle of straw. It fails to uphold giant doctrines that other books of the New Testament do, like justification by faith. Or they'll come to James and they'll say, Jesus is never directly quoted, and so why do we have this as such a close teaching? But I want you to hear, the first words that came to the New Testament church in the form of Scripture that they began to recognize as canon, that is God's measuring rule for them, right? This very first letter shows up and it, and, and it feels so much like Jesus. 
I mean, James is guilty of what they say about the apostles in Acts when they were persecuting them. They could tell that they had been with Jesus. When you read James and you think of your Lord and Savior, you don't need him chapter and verse in the book because you realize this is his whole message continued. I encourage you, read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, and then read the book of James back to back. You will be shocked by the parallels as the church is called to be the buttress, the city on a hill, a holy people. Salvation's been accomplished for you. Do you believe that? Is that by justification, by faith alone? You bet. But is your faith alone? No. James shows up and says, you go live it. Are you comforted in Christ and your suffering? It better radically change everyone around you. If not, it's not your comfort. I want to be a church here at RBC that walks in the comforts of this book. Do you? Do you? Christians that walk in the comfort of God, absent of the understanding of the lost and the broken, don't actually have the comfort. But James, who's going to turn, you know, not only be comforting, but also very convicting, he holds these truths to be self-evident. He holds them as they are. He stands on the promises of God and he writes, and, and the Holy Spirit has written this book for the church. So it is for converted Christians. It is for comforted Christians. And in closing, finally, slaves of God are convicted Christians. We will see in this book that like a person's life, the book of James doesn't just deal with the high mountains of comfort. It also deals with the low moments. Your life is like that. James does not have some idealized fantasy about your walk with Christ, okay? If you fail to keep your own promises because you hold out a future version of you all the time that loves God, and right now you're not that, James wants to show up and say, hey, you'll never reach that because <laughs> you need grace all the time. You, you won't reach perfection. And hey, also, you're not evaluating yourself rightly here. James shows up and he destroys the idealistic idea of being a Christian, and he shows us what it means to deal with indwelling sin and yet still trust Jesus at every turn. At every turn in this book, it'll be, it seems random, but it's not. It seems, you know, there's private address and then it goes public. He's addressing the individual, then he's addressing collectively. It's a sermon, honestly. It feels like a sermon when you read it. That's why I'd encourage you to read it. It'd be a lot shorter than mine, right? It's 15 minutes and he's better than I am at it. But here's the deal. There are real scriptural valleys as well. Let's talk about the bad. Again, open your copy of James. I want you to see some of these. <clears throat> right off the bat, in James 1, verse 2, and then also verse 12, uh, really all the way through 18, you will meet hard trials of suffering in this life. And James deals with them head on. James will tell you that those who doubt God, they are like double-minded people. They are unstable in everything that they do. James 1.8. Don't be like them. Don't be like them. Okay? Be convicted. Be something different. But don't be like somebody who's tossed to and fro by the winds of waves and doctrine. Set your sail with Jesus and don't take it down. Don't take it down. Don't let the waves and the wind rule, but they do, right? And J James is saying, look, this is a real thing. People are double-minded and unstable. Look at James 1, 26 and 27. James will say things like your religion, your faith is worthless if you fail to pursue holiness. If you fail to love others, James is going to tell us it is not true religion that you, that you practice. 
In James 1.13, the first half, before we see that mercy triumphs judgment, you know, wealth, things like money and wealth, self-righteousness, they run close together. Oftentimes when you're rich and wealthy and things are good, you get very puffed up and very self-righteous and you fail in what you should be doing, which is what? Ministering to the needs of those around you. From plenty, giving. James wants to show up and say, listen, oftentimes those who fail to connect the dots, who fail to show mercy, they don't have mercy. Pretty heavy stuff. What about James 2, 26? A body without a soul, he says, spirit is dead. If you have a body, someone, and they're dead, their soul is no longer with them. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. James is saying that if like a body without a soul, so is a faith without good works. It's dead. Dead. Flee from this deadness. If you, if you don't understand that your justification by faith, if you don't understand that when God purchased you, he purchased all of you, all your past, all your present, all your future, and it includes your good works that he predestined also from the foundation of the world, Ephesians 2.11. If you fail to connect that holiness is expected, you may not have believed the gospel. <laughs> you hear how I said that? That's how these don't, they're not enemies, they're just living together. And Blake has the glorious job of preaching that whole section to you. It's the hardest passage in James. But it's not hard to the Christian. It's convicting. <laughs> okay, it's not false. It's convicting. It's, it's, it's literally that God is viewing you still dead on the bottom of the ocean floor in need of his regeneration. God still views you like that. Now, now, now God, God justifies that dead body, brings it to life by faith, and that's apart from your works, sure. But you're so quick to jump to the good, James says, that you would actually think that he can't, as God, still understand you as dead. How do you relate to him? How do you think about what your saving faith means? You were saved by works, the works of another, Jesus. But you also, you said you'd follow him, didn't you? Did you not? Didn't you say you would follow him, beloved? James wants to show up to the church and say over and over again. And if you'll notice, his favorite greeting is always, my brethren, my brothers, Okay, so he may be calling out the hypocrite, but it's, 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 he's in there with them. We're in this together, family. So let's get to the end and let's not, let's not be the people that get to the end of life and just end up saying, oh man, I wish I would have done that better. Oh man, I wish I would have done that better. Oh, I have so much regrets. No, no, no. Let's, let's handle these things along the way. James 4 is a low friendship with this world, Christian, is like being an enemy of God. It puts you at enmity. You are like an enemy against God. People who are friends of the world are enemies of God. If your life in the next 13 weeks is running side by side, parallel with the world in many, many ways, be warned. James says that you are, like Jesus, supposed to be in it, but not of it, right? As Paul writes to the Corinthian church, you would have to go all the way out of the world to get actually away. Don't think of it that way. But think of it like this. The moment that you are walking in the world, oh, do not underestimate the power of the flesh. Do not underestimate the, the, the power of satanic forces and spiritual warfare and the, and the serious temptations you're under. 
For a moment, you would love the world and you would make yourself an enemy of God, James 4, 4. And then maybe the harshest is God opposes pride. God is against pride. God hates pride. Pride says, I deserve the front seat in the church. I'm richer, I get the better seat. Pride in leadership says, I see you're richer. I see you need the better seat. Please sit here in the place of honor. Well, the gospel through James shows up and says, let there be no partiality among you. God opposes the pride. He hates pride. He hates it. God has declared war on pride. And you don't want to, you don't want to fight in this war because God wins. But God gives grace to the humble. In James, we're not after the richest money. We're after the widow's might. We're after the one who gives out of the abundance of his poverty and his brokenness and his understanding, knowing that God can take a few pieces of crumbled pottery and make a beautiful vessel of righteousness. That's what we're after. The warning, though, is how easy it is to fall into pride. Do you see yourself in such topics being addressed? My warning today is you should and you will as we study this book. I will. James is not interested in where you view yourself as righteous. Okay? He's concerned with where you fail to view yourself a sinner in need of God's grace. I'll say that again. As we study this book, James is not interested in where you view yourself as righteous. He's concerned for where you fail to view yourself as a sinner in need of God's grace. Do you have such humility present in your life? I hope so. Those in the faith do. It's like a surgeon. James is going to confront things like our hypocrisy or our insecurities, our aggressions. Be slow to speak and quick to listen and slow to anger. The anger of men does not produce the righteousness of God. Right? He's after our aggressions. He's after our apathies and our self-righteousness. For this reason, I believe the book of James is, can bring perfect balance to communities like ours. We will discover that James is interested in you living your life as one who is sent, not as one who is superior. Let me say that again. He is interested in helping you see that the best way your life is to be spent is to be like one who is sent, poured out, giving away, calling themselves Giving, being willing to die so that others may live, this is how James wants you to live, not as one who is superior. What do we mean by that? James asks you hard questions. He says things like, what good is it, brother, sister, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? James goes so far to point out your perfect theology. He says, perfect theology saves no one. James 2.19, you believe that God is one? Well, there's a summary for you, right? Talk about orthodoxy. What is God? He is God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What do all of the early church's heresies start? Not understanding the triunity of God, Right? Jesus is less than God. Error, right? Jesus is, you know, it's some kind of equal with the devil. Error, right? I mean, it's like on and on these go. But if someone understands God is one, right? We believe that, do we not? That's called perfect orthodoxy. James is like, oh, you know that salvation is by grace and faith alone through Christ alone? Reformation song? Is that your church's favorite hymn? <laughs> 
You believe it perfectly? James shows up and he says, oh wait, you believe that scripture is the sole authority in this world. That God will judge the whole earth by it. Flesh and blood will pass away. The word of God will stand forever. You believe this? Wait, wait, you believe that regeneration precedes faith and repentance and that has direct you know, cause on how you should live? You believe God is holy, holy, holy? You believe that the saved shall never fall away? Do you believe the atonement is a definite reality for God's elect children? James shows up and he says, you believe this? You believe all these doctrinal truths that God is one? So do the demons. The demons believe those things perfectly. He even adds, they shudder constantly. More than you do is the idea James is saying. Far more than you understand, the demons know perfectly how true everything I just said is. James asked the question, does your belief in what you know lead you to absolute humility and service as one who is sent, as a messenger saying, I, can't, I can declare these mysteries because they're mine, but they're, they belong to God and I'm declaring them to you as my own. I believe them. Is that, how, is that where God's orthodoxy, he's one, he's true, these things, does it lead you to go and to share as one who is sent or does it lead you to fold your hands in superiority and comfort? It's good for our church. James' message is that your convictions must lead to holy actions or they'll become your worst comforts. You ever thought about that? James says that your convictions better lead you to holy action because if not, they'll become your worst comforts. And I've lived that lie. You ever been inactive for a moment, disobedient, struggling in sin? You grab a doctrine of God. You know what obedience is. You're choosing not to do it. All of a sudden, that doctrine gets warped and twisted. That's what the devil loves to do. Demons know it perfectly. That's how they can take it and twist it. James' message is that your convictions, they got to lead to holy actions or they're going to become your worst comforts. C.S. Lewis wrote a picture of hell. And in it, he tells a fictional story. It's, it's, the book's called The Great Divorce. It's got a lot of issues in it. But, but I really like one thing he did. He painted hell for me in a new light when I read it. He tells the story of hell from a perspective of a man who dies, goes to hell. And when he gets to hell, it's a city. And what's crazy about this city is the man actually can have everything he wants. So he has endless resource. He's able to take and make and create like in the garden instantly. And it's like he builds a house and he sets it up and it's glorious and awesome. And, and, he, and he has everything he wants and a perfect kind of setup there. And then he gets it all built and he's in his front yard and he looks and he has a neighbor. And he hates him. He hates the neighbor. Their existence, everything about them, he can't stand it. And he looks at what he has and he realizes this is worthless because of them. And so he moves further out in the city. He builds on the next house, the next street. And he has everything he wants, everything in this world. It's all there. And he looks at his neighbor again. And he says, oh, I thought I got out here far enough away from everybody. And he hates everything that he has. And so he moves on further out. And he just keeps moving and moving. And hell is an eternal constant feeling of I get to the top of what this world can give me and I realize that I hate it. I hate the people. 
I hate myself. I hate everything that I have. And then I just move on again to the next. And I get deceived again. And I'm back into, oh, yeah, it's all good. And then I see a person and I say, I hate them. And I hate myself. Because hell, the theme of hell is, I hate you, God. That's what hell's all about. I hate you, God. You're not good. You're not holy. You don't love me. And you've left me alone. It's just over and over again. James says, you talk like that with your tongue. That's how you think. And it comes out. An unbeliever, it comes out. Eventually, that's what comes out. So be warned. The tongue is like a fire, set on fire by the course of hell, he says. With it, we praise God. And with it, we curse man who's made in his image. James says things like this. Why? Because he wants to convict you. I think Lewis was on to that understanding. We need to remove in us first any lie that it's anything more than Jesus, right? I mean, it's got to be that God made a way for us to stop messing up, and he did in his son. And so why is heaven, who's the crown joy of heaven? Jesus Christ. Who's the center of it? The sun is gone. The world doesn't, final things tell us that there's one revolving thing, and it's not the sun in the center of it all. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ replaces the light of heaven with his own glory in the new heavens and new earths. And slaves of God, converted Christians, comforted and convicted along the way, they see it. James wants you to live out your faith. One set of verses in James strikes at this notion beautifully, and it's a perfect summary that leads us into our response today. I want to read you James uh, right here in, 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 verse, uh, in uh, chapter 2, and I want to read 23 through 25. No, I'm sorry, brothers. Uh, chapter 1, sorry. So James 1, 23 through 25, shows us how God can convict us so clearly here. It says this, quote, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at it, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks perfect into, looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. That's what we're after in this book. Slaves of God are converted Christians. Question, if you do not trust Jesus Christ as your Lord, will you believe and do so today? Slaves of God are comforted Christians. Will you draw near to God and receive the comfort of his grace today? And then finally, slaves of God are convicted Christians. Will you receive the truth of God's direct, direct word? Will you receive them at your hypocrisies in the weeks to come? Will you be willing? Will I? I pray that we will. And that as a result, the world around us will be different because of it. Let's pray and then sing about all we have is Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that as we look into the law of liberty, James's way of telling us to look into the face of Jesus Christ. As we look there and we look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, we know that we will walk away from him, not forgetting who we are. For when our identity is set in him, we are not hearers who forget, but doers who act. Thank you, God, for the mystery 
of you working every single one of our failures for your good, or for our good, and for your glory. Without that promise, the, the convictions of James, Lord, oh, they would, they would crush us. We'd be left with our own works. Lord, we'd be left with the, the lie that, that we can somehow do it ourselves. But Lord, we thank you for this complimentary truth that, Lord, as we sing about all we have is Christ, it also means that all we want to do is obey you with our entire life. As we study this book together in the weeks to come, I pray that it would shape us, shape us into a sent people, not a superior people. Make us people who go, Lord, and give our lives away and love those that are broken and lost and need it, God. That come together in Christian harmony and love, believing that you're for us and not against us, God. We pray that that encouragement would, would rule and that the word of God would stand strong. That you would use this book to shape us into a faith that is full of good works, God. You purchased every one of them. Grant us the faith as we study this book to see them and pursue them all according to your merciful grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.